Beloved, we stand in the power and love of Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. If you have a Bible, if you can grab your Bible while you're standing and turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, reading the opening four verses. Here reads God's holy word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible, and inspired word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the opportunity this morning to open up your word together. We ask that you would grant us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to behold your beauty and majesty this morning. Please turn our minds from all the distractions of this world and fix them upon your glorious truths. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated, church. As many of you are well aware, we live in a relativistic age. Many people no longer believe in absolute truth. When it comes to matters of truth or, or morality, they hold to a philosophical position that everyone can have their own individual point of view and that each one's view is valid. They believe that truth is relative to the individual. This means that what is true for one person may or may not be true for another. And thus, they determine for themselves what they believe is right and what they believe is wrong. But nobody, according to their view, can impose their views or their beliefs on another person. Now, this sounds like what the Bible refers to as doing is right in your own eyes. You hear these people, and you'll, you'll know those who have this mindset, because they'll say things like this. Well, I'm glad that you have your truth. I'm happy with my truth. It's very telling in the way they speak. And even though some of you are like, well, that, that, that philosophy and that philosophical position can be broken down simply by some logic, it is a wonderful scheme of Satan that many have fallen prey to. And so what's my point with opening up with this this morning? When a reverence for God and a worship of God 
is removed from any society, the result is a loss for truth. And the result of a loss of truth is a loss of hope. We are living in such times that people are saying there is no such thing as truth. And because there is no truth, there is no hope. But beloved, I have a different word for you this morning. We do have truth. And because we do have truth, we do have hope. This morning I've titled the message, God Has Spoken. We could end there this morning. Just in that alone, there is great hope. God has spoken. This morning, I know many of you are excited to begin our study through the book of Hebrews. Some of you have done your own study this past week, preparing yourselves for our study through Hebrews, and I'm thankful for that. I'm sure it refreshed your own souls this week. John Calvin speaks of this letter to Hebrews as an invaluable treasure in the church. He wrote this, Calvin said, since the epistle addressed to the Hebrews contains a full discussion of the eternal divinity of Christ, his supreme government, and only priesthood, which are the main points of heavenly wisdom, and as these things are so explained in it, that the whole power and work of Christ are set forth in the most graphic way, it rightly deserves to have the place of honor of an invaluable treasure in the church, end quote. An invaluable treasure. And so as an invaluable treasure, let's take some time looking at Hebrews as a whole and address some of the context of the letter so we understand what we're about to study through. So before diving back into these verses we just read, let's talk about the letter. In this letter, we see the most fundamental interpretive principle on display. You say, well, what is that? It is Scripture is best interpreted by Scripture itself. And we see that throughout the letter to Hebrews. Out of all the writings in the New Testament, none is more saturated with Old Testament references than Hebrews. The Old Testament is found in every single chapter in Hebrews. There are 35 direct quotes from the Greek Old Testament, from the Septuagint. There are an additional 34 allusions to the Old Testament. In this letter, we have 19 summaries of Old Testament material. And 13 times there is a name or a topic that is mentioned from the Old Testament. You say, well, what's the point? The point is the writer uses Scripture to interpret Scripture. He helps us understand things that perhaps we didn't understand before as they all point to Christ and to the supremacy of Christ. And for us and for the modern reader, for many of us who are not familiar or as familiar with the Old Testament, we can look at Hebrews and go, it's kind of challenging but for the original hearers, they would have known very well the Old Testament scriptures and would have understood them immediately. And so we will be refreshed as we look into the study and see how the Old Testament, all as Jesus said, points to him. Another notable observation about Hebrews is it lacks some features of a common letter. It lacks a signature and it lacks an address. And nowhere in the letter does it reveal who the author is or who the recipients are. 
And so, for many of you, I had somebody already ask me this week, who's the author of Hebrews? Who's the author? Well, as I just mentioned, the letter does not say who the author is. And though the letter does not include the author, I can tell you who wrote Hebrews. Now, I see some of you squirming in your chairs. Don't do it! (laughs) Now, I mean, I, I can do with absolute certainty, absolute confidence, I can tell you who wrote Hebrews. You ready? Some of you already guessed. God. God did. There's no guessing there. God is the divine author of Hebrews. And while the books of the Bible were written by human authors, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, tells that these men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is God who is the divine author of all Scripture. This is what we mean when we say the Bible is inspired, or we speak about the Bible's inspiration. You see, the Bible is not the insights of men. The Bible is God's Word through the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of human men. Bible declares that all Scripture is breathed out by God. So who is the author? God. God is the author. But then you would say, well, who do you think is the human author? Who do you think actually God used to write it down? Who was the one that recorded this letter? Who was the one that had the pastoral heart that God used to write to these believers? Well, as we look through church history, we know that even in the first three centuries of the church, there was no agreement on who wrote Hebrews. As a matter of fact, the tradition in the the churches in the East, in in Syria and in Egypt, was that Paul was the author. Some of you might think that is true. It seems like there are some Pauline-like statements in there. But at the same time, in those first three centuries, the churches in the West in Italy, in France, in Africa, they didn't hold to that tradition that Paul was the author. And even most modern scholars would refute any notion that Paul is the author. And they base that upon three different arguments. And because this is something that is debated, I'm going to tell you what these three arguments are. Firstly, we're familiar with many of Paul's letters. And in his letters, Paul always identifies himself. And this letter... The author does not identify himself. One argument, probably not the most solid argument, but it's there. Secondly, the structure and the style of Hebrews is unlike any of Paul's letters. Paul's style typically expounds on doctrine and then moves on to exhortation. Talks about duty later. But here in Hebrews, doctrine is interspersed with exhortation all the way throughout the letter. And also what we would miss in English is how this was written in the Greek. The writer of Hebrews uses a high literary style of Greek, where Paul always used a common style of Greek. You say, well, yeah, that's nice. I'm still not convinced. Some of you hold this is Paul. So how about this last argument, which I think is the most inconvincing, that this was not Paul. The writer of Hebrews, if you look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, in verse 3 of chapter 2, he says that he received the message about Christ from others who had heard it firsthand from Jesus. You guys know what Paul said elsewhere about how he heard the message. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 12, 
Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think that and that alone we conclude, conclude safely that Paul was not the author of Hebrews. And so there are many statements that seem like Paul would have said them. So the author was probably familiar with Paul, close to Paul, understood Paul's teachings. We know that the author of, of Hebrews refers to Paul's protege Timothy in the closing of this letter in chapter 13, verse 23. And so others have proposed possible other authors. As early as the third century, Luke was proposed as the author because of similarities in literary style between the Gospel of Luke and of Acts. But he's not the only one that was proposed. Also Barnabas and Apollos. Martin Luther was a, a big fan of Apollos perhaps being the author. He said because of the eloquence of Hebrews. And in Acts chapter 18, verse 24, Apollos is referred to as an eloquent man. And so the argument is perhaps it was them. And so I wrap this up by saying, who is the human author? God knows. Who is the real author? God. He is the divine author. And though we don't know much about the human author, we know a little bit more, we can glean some from this letter, of who the original recipients were of this letter. Even the title that is added to this text, To the Hebrews, that wasn't in the original text, that was added. But if we trace back to the earliest manuscripts, that title was added to all of the earliest manuscripts, suggesting that the recipients were Jewish Christians. So the recipients were Jewish Christians. Most likely these Christians were living in Rome. We see at the closing of this in Hebrews chapter 13, that we read that those who come from Italy send you greetings. I mean, those who are originally from Italy are sending greetings back to Italy. And so most likely, these believers are in Rome. What about the timing? Most likely, this is written before 64 AD, before Nero's persecution of Christians. And most likely, or most definitely, it was before 70 AD, before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And we can determine this because Hebrews speaks of temple rituals as a present reality. We see that in chapters 9 and 10, which means that the temple must have still been there. And if we look at history, history will tell us that Jewish Christians in Rome suffered persecution in 49 AD under Emperor Claudius and again in the 60s, 60s under Nero. And so we learn from this letter that the recipients were a community of believers that were in need of encouragement. They're a community of believers that were faltering in their commitment to Christ. They were facing opposition, persecution, and there was a temptation to leave following Christ and to turn back to Judaism. We know they suffered for their faith in Christ. Hebrews tells us, but they had not yet suffered to the point of death. And so the author, whoever he was, writes with a pastoral heart to encourage believers to maintain their commitment to Christ. I want to stop and ask you, there were times that you're struggling in your faith? Times that you have doubts or unbelief? Times that get hard? 
This letter is written to those just like you, those who are struggling. Those who are wondering, how am I going to press on, and should I even press on? And the point of the letter is to stoke perseverance in you, that God's grace would come through this letter to help us to press on, to continue on by his grace. The author's plea in this letter we find in chapter 10, verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Without wavering, without doubting, without thinking about turning, hold fast. Hold fast the truths. Why? Because he, Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Even when we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. And so the encouragement is, hold on. Hold on, he is faithful. And the author describes the letter's intent in that it is a word of exhortation. We see that in the closing in chapter 13, verse 22. His desire is to stir up their affections for Christ, to focus all of their attention on Jesus and Jesus alone. Have you ever had a brother or sister that comes alongside you and just redirects your gaze to Christ? That no matter what was going on in your life, all of a sudden there is peace and comfort and joy as you gaze upon our Savior. That is the author's intent. It's not to say, I don't know that you're suffering. I don't care that you're suffering. He actually says, I know that you're suffering, but here is the remedy. Look to Christ. Put your eyes upon Jesus Hebrews is about three things. It is about the superiority of Christ's person. The opening seven chapters unfold the superiority of Christ's person. And secondly, it is about the superiority of Christ's work. We see that in chapters 8 through the middle of chapter 10. And lastly, it is the necessity of faith in Christ for salvation from the latter half of chapter 10 through the end of the book. This letter presents Jesus as superior superior to angels, superior to Moses and the prophets, superior to Aaron and the Levitical priesthood, superior to the blood sacrifices of the Old Covenant, and superior to the tabernacle and the temple. For this original audience who was looking, maybe we can turn back. He says, why? You have something much better. There is nothing to turn back to. Hebrews presents Jesus as the true messenger, the true prophet, the true peace priest, the true king, and the true sacrifice. Jesus. There is no one else and nothing else. Hebrews exhorts us to persevere in the faith, even in the face of trials. And it shows us why we must press on, because of the surpassing supremacy of of Jesus Christ. Matchless. Hebrews informs us how we are to persevere. It's through faith in Christ and Christ alone. It's through staying fixed upon Christ. And so I say this as we enter into the study that we are in for such a treat. If you are here this morning and are a believer in Jesus Christ, He is Lord and Savior. He is everything. And the letter of Hebrews continually points you to Christ. 
continually takes our focus and turns us to steer at the supremacy of Jesus. So are you ready to begin? That was all way of introduction this morning. And so as you look back to your Bibles at the opening of the letter to the Hebrews, I do want to mention a little side note that as we go week by week through this letter, there's not going to be a consistent amount of text addressed each week. Sometimes we'll address just a couple of verses. Sometimes there'll be larger passages because we want to address it in context. We don't want to get lost in the letter. And so some of you might say, well, you did like one and a half verses this week, and next week you're saying you're doing 10 verses. What's going on? We're keeping the letter in context. So that's what we're going to plan on doing. That's what our desire is to do. And the context and the focus should remain the supremacy of Christ. So let's return to our Bibles and look again at these opening four verses. Long ago... And at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And having become a much superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You know, it's interesting, as Hebrews opens up, it opens up much more like a sermon than it does a letter. And what we miss in the English is that in the Greek, Hebrews verse 1 through 4 is one single multi-clause sentence. It's all together. In English, we have three sentences here. But it is all one thing. But it's broken up in two parts by a clause. It is two parts. The first is there's divine revelation. Verse 1 and in the beginning of verse 2. And the second part is the person, work, and status of God's Son. In the latter part of verse 2 all the way through verse 4. This morning we're only going to focus on the first part. Divine revelation opening up in verse 1, going through part of verse 2. Again, I'm going to read it to show you where we're focusing. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. William Barclay uh, calls this opening to the letter of Hebrews, quote, the most sonorous piece of Greek in the whole New Testament. Well, we miss it in the English, but the literary style here in the Greek, it opens up, and in this opening line, there are five words in Greek that begin with the same letter. There is alliteration in here, and we miss it as it is translated into English. But it is a literary masterpiece as it opens up. And though we don't benefit from the eloquence of the Greek, we definitely benefit from the content. So what is the content of the opening to this letter. It is that God speaks. God speaks. The living God speaks. What an opening line to discouraged saints, that God speaks. And the fact that God would speak 
that he would speak to man is a wonderful act of his grace. I mean, man is dependent on God's word for knowledge about him, about knowledge of his ways, that we would have revelation of truth because God chose to communicate it to us. God speaks. And as he speaks, he speaks divine self-revelation. He speaks of himself, of who he is, the truths of his character, the truths of his promises. And in Hebrews, we read in chapter 6, verse 18, we read that it is impossible for God to lie, which means everything that he speaks is truth. Every word is truth. We know that since he speaks, he is not a God who has created all things and left his creation to fend for itself. You know, sadly, there are those today that believe that. They believe in God who created all things but then abandoned his creation. God speaks. God reveals himself. He lets us know who he is. He reveals himself to his creation. He blesses us with truth. Uh, regarding this idea, John MacArthur said this. He said, quote, The senses of man, marvelous as they are, are incapable of reaching beyond the natural world. For us to know anything about God, he must tell us. We could never know God if he did not speak to us, end quote. There's great hope and great joy that God speaks, which says God cares and God loves his creation, and God reveals himself to his people. And so as this letter opens, in one sense, the author of Hebrews begins the letter with God as the source of truth and not the believer's feelings. I want you to remember the context of what they were going through. They were going through suffering. Their feelings could have been contrary to the truths of God. I'm going through this. God must not care. If there was a God, why would I have to endure this? If the claims of Christ are true, then why are these things happening? Does that sound familiar to any of us? These natural thoughts that would come to us at times? The author begins by saying, focus on truth. The truth of God, not on feelings. Though they were faced with challenges, the author says the remedy is turning your focus away from your feelings and on to the living God. I've got to say that is very applicable for all of us. Because our feelings are real, but they're not always right. And so to redirect our gaze back to truth back to reality, back to who Christ is. That we're not to obey our feelings, we are to obey Christ. Which at times means going against our feelings. And so the writer here opens up with an immediate focus on God. Put your attention on God. What a practical piece for us as we go to encourage others. Look to Christ. Let me help you put your gaze back on the Lord. 
How many of us on a Sunday morning are waking up to what we would consider not a good morning? (laughs) It's a rough morning, and we have that thought, I'm just going to phone it in today. I'm not going to go. I'm going to stay home today. I'm, I'm feeling funky. I'm feeling off. And yet, by God's grace, you end up coming. And we open up the Word of God, and we read And we sing unto the Lord and sing about him. And what happens? Our focus is redirected. All that was distracting us, all the cares of this world, all the cares of life, change at that moment because we know that God is for us. And we know that God is good. And though we might not understand everything that is going on, we trust his character. And so our gaze is redirected. But that's a Sunday morning. What happens when you wake up on Monday morning? I mean, you're welcome to come back to church if you like. But I would encourage you to say, good morning, Lord. And begin there. And begin here. And redirect your attention. This is what the author of Hebrews does. He opens up with the focus on God. And he speaks of the same God who spoke in the past, now speaks in the present through his son, Jesus. I want you to think about that. Now spoken through Christ. We're on this side of the coming of Messiah. And we have the fulfillment, the fullness of the message of salvation, of the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, if I say that and you sit there kind of like, meh, I want you to sit and think about it again. We get to sit on this side and to look back and reflect on the cross. Whereas we will see the comparison of those who are tempted to go back to the old way, he says, yes, God spoke long ago, and he spoke in certain ways, and at many times, and through prophets. But now, there's a final word, and it's through his son, Jesus. Why would you go anywhere else? The direction is look to Christ. And the fact that he begins with this focus in the opening of his words, that the final word is in the son, would bring comfort to the original hearers, and should bring comfort to us today. In these opening words, the author contrasts four different areas between the older and the newer revelation. He he speaks of the timing of the revelation, that there was long ago versus these last days. He, He contrasts the recipients of the revelation, that it was to our fathers, and now it's to us. He contrasts the agents of the revelation, that it was by the prophets, but now it's by his son. And he contrasts which way the revelation was manifested, that long ago it was in many times and in many ways, but now it's one time, one way, it's through Christ. And so let's begin looking at these contrasts as he lays them out here for us, that the contrast of the timing of the revelation he starts off with long ago. And he's going to contrast that long ago with in these last days. And so what does he speak of when he says long ago? He was referring to the time prior to the coming of Messiah. 
It was an era of preparation. It is the past. It spans from the given of the law of Moses to the close of public prophecy in the days of Malachi. But he contrasts these what happened long ago to in these last days. These last days are an era of fulfillment. It's a time ushered in by the coming of Jesus. These last days in Hebrews we see referred to as well as the end of the ages. We see that in Hebrews chapter 9, which I'm going to read because it's such a great verse. Hebrews 9.26 says, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, speaking of Christ. So this time has begun, these last days. These last days are a current time. We've been in these last days for nearly 2,000 years. And so that's the timing of what he's speaking. It is now. And so the contrast continues. It continues to unfold, and he says, what about the recipients? The recipients of what was long ago to the recipients of what is in these last days. He says the older revelation, the one long ago, the recipients was to our fathers or to their forefathers. But in the newer revelation, it is in these last days that the revelation is to us. It's to individual children of God. Now you speak of the forefathers. Amongst those who received God's revelation, Adam, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses. But now, God speaks to us individually. In these last days. He also contrasts the, the agents of revelation that the communication that was long ago, that was made to the fathers, it was made by the prophets. Whereas the communication in these last days, this communication that is to us, is made by God's Son, Jesus. So think about the prophets. The prophets, they were many. And the prophets, they were human. But the Son is one, and the Son is divine. I want you to hold your place there in Hebrews and turn Back to the Gospel of John. Let's look at the words of John the Baptist. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, once you get there, we're going to start in verse 31. In John chapter 3, reading from verse 31 through 34. John the Baptist's words here are going to be helpful for our understanding. Verse 31 reads, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Do you know who he's speaking of? Right before this, if you go back, he said that he must decrease, but someone else must increase. Do you know who he's speaking of? Jesus. Jesus. You know, the prophets were from below. The Son is from above. 
The prophets would speak what they hear, but the Son speaks what he has seen and what he's heard. This is God's last and best word. It is in his Son, who, by the way, is the Word. Many of you are familiar with the opening of John's Gospel. In chapter 1, verse 1, the very opening words of John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And to help us understand the Word, down in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word has been revealed. God has spoken. He has revealed Himself fully through His Son, and what is revealed through Christ is grace and truth. The author of Hebrews, if you would turn back there, his last contrast is between, is between the ways in which the revelation was manifested. So in the older communication, in the long ago time, the message was fragmented over time. It was many times, and it was made in many ways. It was diverse, and it was incomplete. I like the way that R. Kent Hughes elaborates here. He says, quote, God, God utilized great devices to instruct his prophets. God spoke to Moses at Sinai in thunder and lightning and with the voice of a trumpet. He whispered to Elijah at Horeb in a still small voice. Ezekiel was informed by visions and Daniel through dreams. God appeared to Abram in human form and to Jacob as an angel. God declared himself by law, by warnings, by exhortations, by type, and by parable, end quote. But all through those messages, all those revelations of God, the total message was incomplete. It was fragmented. It was given piece by piece. But what we have now is the full message. We have the complete word. It is the fulfillment comes through Jesus Christ. I mean, do you remember Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus, coming alongside a couple of his disciples as they were conversing and talking about different things? You'll find it in Luke chapter 24. But as Jesus comes alongside, he speaks this way. He says, or actually the scriptures speak of Jesus pointing them to the scriptures, and it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke 24, 27. He says everything of long ago, all those fragmented messages pointed to him. And church, we no longer live in those days. We now have the full message. We have the fullness of the Savior. The one who came in grace and truth. The one who is the message of salvation. F.F. F. Bruce said this. He said, the story of divine revelation is a story of progression up to Christ. But there is no progression beyond him. He is it. He's the final word. He's the full word. He's everything. And so rather than there being many times and many ways, there is one way. I think many of you are familiar that Jesus spoke of himself as the way. It is only him. 
This is God's final and complete revelation. Well, what does that mean? Well, on one point it means this, be careful. It means that anybody who says that they have received a message from God, another revelation, a new revelation, is a liar. Because we have it in Christ Jesus. We have the final word. And so it doesn't matter if they're a person that's dressed up looking nice and they're knocking on your door. And it doesn't matter if they're a religious leader. If they say they have a new revelation from God, do not listen. Christ is God's final word, who's existed for all eternity. And then put on human flesh and dwelt among us, that we could behold him. There are not any new revelations from God because the revelation is complete in Jesus. He is the true messenger. So anyone who claims to have a new message from God, listen, is exalting themselves above Christ. They're saying they are a better messenger, that they are the fullness of God's message, that what Christ said and what Christ has done is incomplete, that his word is not enough, that Christ needs help. We know better, right? We know better. They are a fraud. They are false teachers. They are liars. And we are not to listen to their message. Church, God has spoken. And he is still speaking through his son, through the pages of Scripture. And as we focus on God who speaks, it is of utmost importance that we understand that it is God who speaks in the Bible. It is God who is speaking. It is not Moses who is speaking in Genesis. It's not David who is speaking in the Psalms. It's not Paul who's speaking in Romans. It is God who is speaking. And since it is God who is speaking, we can take away a couple things. One, the Bible has divine authority. What does that mean? It means it is absolute truth. It's unchanging. The truths of the Bible do not change. They do not morph to the current culture or society or anything else. God remains the same. The author of Hebrews tells us, in chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. We can hold fast to these truths. They do not change. We do not modify them. We do not rip out certain pages because it's not in line with what current culture says. We don't use a black Sharpie highlighter to outline certain things and get rid of them. This is the fullness of God speaking. Pointing, it all points to Christ. 
You know, I began this morning speaking about relativism. I want to remind you as we get to the closing of this that there was an exchange between Pontius Pilate and Jesus. There were some words that were said that I want to point your attention to. John chapter 18, you can look in your Bibles if you want to turn there, John 18. Jesus is on trial here, and we read in John chapter 18, picking up in verse 37, an exchange between him and, and Pilate. In verse 37, it says, Then Pilate said to him, being Jesus, So you're a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? You know, Jesus said, my, my sheep, they hear my voice and they follow me. And here he speaks these truths to Pilate. That, that in Christ, God has fully and ultimately revealed himself. And Pilate missed the truth while it literally was staring him in the face. And perhaps the truth is in your face. And perhaps you too are missing it. Jesus spoke of himself and said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. You want to talk about absolute truth? Jesus is the definition of it. He has all divine authority to speak. And he says, I am the way. He says, I am the truth. He says, I am the life. And he says, there is no other way unto salvation except through him. Absolute truth. Out of God's mercy and out of his love, he has spoken. He has spoken that salvation is in Christ alone. We have God's full and final revelation presented in Jesus Christ. We're waiting for no new revelation from God. And therefore, He alone, Christ alone, is the one in whom we are to trust, to put our trust in. He is the one in whom we are to hope in. He is the one to whom we are to worship and he alone is the one to whom we are to obey. It's Christ alone and no one else. And nothing else. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ is man's only hope. He is God's final word to mankind. Christ. And he has come. And so to all who have sinned and all who need a Savior, Christ has come to save sinners. 
He has graciously, God has graciously declared that though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. That though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Church, this only comes through Jesus Christ. Friend, if you're here visiting or the truth is staring at you in the face, it only comes through Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no one else. And it's through trusting in him alone that there is salvation. Believing in his life, in his death, and his resurrection. And to all who would come to him by his grace, his word is final. It is complete. Your sins have been paid in full and you are forever his. If you are God's child, you say, amen, hallelujah, praise God. And if you are not, the invitation goes out to come to Jesus. The one who came to lay down his life, the one who came to live in your place, a perfect life that you could not live, to live in complete perfection, and to die as a perfect sacrifice in your place, to pay the penalty for your sins, that the wrath of God that is being stored up for your sins be fully paid by what Christ has done on the cross and accredited to you by faith in Christ. This is the good news. The good news that God has revealed himself and that God, before the foundations of the world, had a plan of salvation for his people. That our sins are paid in full and that we are forever his and it's all to the praise of his glory and grace. What a mighty and wonderful God. Before I close in a word of prayer, let's take a quiet minute to reflect on what God has spoken through His Word. Father, we are humbled by the fact that You are a God who delights in revealing Yourself to Your people. You're a God who speaks, a God who can be known you have gifted us your holy word that reveals yourself to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Oh God, we thank you for your grace and truth that is unveiled to us through Jesus. We praise you that because of the absolute truth that Jesus is Lord and Savior, that we have a blessed hope. To you be the glory, now and forever. Amen.